Cornucopia Radio presents On the morning of Wednesday the 12th of November 1997 Michael Pritchard left home to travel to work where he was a delivery driver for the Staffordshire-based Business Express and had been for some 19 years a proud and loyal member of the company He arrived at the depot and loaded his deliveries into his white Sherpa van adorned with the company's distinctive logo. He left at around 7.45am, ready to deliver to the Staffordshire and Derbyshire area, somewhere he knew well and was very fond of. By 3.10pm, he was coming toward the end of his round and was in Corndon, a suburb of the city of Derby in the East Midlands region of England. Who would have guessed he was only minutes away from tragedy? At about 3.20pm, Michael arrived on a road known as the Cunnery, a residential cul-de-sac in Kirk Langley, a small hamlet just off the A52, about three miles west of Derby. He still had around ten parcels left to deliver, so he stopped and got out of the van and walked to one of the houses near the top of the cul-de-sac, leaving the door open and the engine still running. Suddenly, a young man jumped into Michael's van and closed the door. Michael saw what was happening, and before he had an opportunity to make the delivery, quickly ran back to the van, calling to the thief to get out, banging on the door and sides. The vehicle reversed, turning in the road. Michael appeared desperate to stop the theft of his van and its few remaining contents. He stood in front of the vehicle, but rather than stop, the young male thief sitting in the driver's seat accelerated, knocking Michael to the ground and running him over. As the van was driven from the scene, Michael was dragged 50 yards further down the road and was fatally injured. As he lay there, his Sherpa van was driven to the junction of the Cunnery and Moor Lane. Hot on its heels appeared another vehicle, a small white van believed to be a Bedford rascal with an E prefix, containing two young males. These two vehicles overtook other traffic in their exit from the village onto the A52 Derby-bound carriageway. Both vehicles were driven erratically and at high speed. Witnesses recalled the manner in which the vehicles were driven and concluded the two vans were together. Both vehicles turned off the A52 onto Brunn Lane, about a mile from the Cunnery. Here, at the entrance to a field, the Sherpa was abandoned and the young offender got into the rascal van with his accomplices. The van then turned around in the lane and headed back towards the A52. Back at the cunnery, as a result of the horrific head injuries he had received, Michael died there in the carriageway, in that quiet street in Kirk Langley. A life tragically taken away for a few parcels in the back of a van, the sad events of that afternoon leaving a loving wife heartbroken and distraught, and a family at the start of a long and painful search for justice. The following podcast is brought to you by True Crime Investigators UK. But who are they? John was a police officer for 30 years, working locally and nationally as a detective. Sally was also a police officer for 12 years and then retrained as a lawyer and practised in criminal law. Now they are both retired and review cases of interest, some solved, some undetected. 
Throughout this series, they will discuss the cases they are reviewing and interview relevant parties, including police officers, suspects, witnesses and experts. The next case for review is the murder of Michael Pritchard in 1997 and an appeal to the public to help catch the people responsible. Well, welcome back and thank you for listening to True Crime Investigators UK. I'm really pleased that you can spend some time with us whilst we consider and review our next case. John, at the end of the last episode, you mentioned the case that you keep coming back to and that's uh, that's the murder of Michael Pritchard in Kirk Langley in Derbyshire. Yes, that's right. It's a case that I worked on in 1997. It's an undetected murder at Kirk Langley in Derbyshire. It's always at the back of my mind, even though I'm now retired, the fact that the victim, Michael Pritchard, was a lovely man, a van driver. He was delivering parcels and he was killed when somebody tried to steal his van and run over him. It's remained undetected all these years after a lot of police effort trying to catch the culprits. There were three young men. And to this day, I think about it. Could we have done anything else? Could we do anything more? Hence why we're, we're making this podcast. So I'll take you back to 1997 then. What are your recollections of the day? On that particular day, I was working a 2.10 shift in the CID. We respond to all incidents. Obviously, the more serious the crimes, we prioritise. And on that particular afternoon, I received a call with a colleague of mine that an incident had taken place at Kirk Langley and they required further CID staff to attend. My understanding was that uh, a road traffic accident of some kind had taken place, somebody had been run over and they wanted some assistance to help with the inquiries. And what changed it from a road traffic accident to your murder investigation? As we were travelling, we were some 30 minutes away from Kirk Langley on that particular day. We get updates over the radio and it went from a traffic accident to it appeared to be a man had been deliberately run over by a van and it was now being treated as a potential murder inquiry and that we were to attend the scene as soon as possible and receive further instructions. Right, so you were en route then. What happened when you first got to the cunnery? On arrival at the scene, there was a tent over the scene in the road, which I took to be where this incident had taken place. There was cordons on by the police, uniformed officers who had already attended the incident. Members of the public were gathering. Obviously, something serious had happened, and we then liaised with the officer in charge to see what actions we could do or take on board to to help the inquiry. And I suppose the hardest part of a murder inquiry is getting to know your victim because you're getting all your information from their nearest and dearest and at a time when they've suffered great loss. Yes, I mean, as we attended the scene, we were updated by the officer in charge and we understood that a man by the name of Michael Pritchard had been delivering parcels from his uh, delivery van. It appeared that somebody had waited for the opportune moment, seen him get out of the van, the engine was running, got in the driver's seat and tried to drive off. Michael tried to stop them and that's when the incident took place and he was run over and killed. I hadn't heard of Michael Pritchard, neither had any of my colleagues, we didn't know him, we didn't know the company involved, so it was a complete unknown incident at that time as to what had actually happened. And do you keep an open mind as to why he'd been run over? 
whether it was something personal or whether they wanted to steal the contents of the van or whether they wanted to steal the van itself. Yes, as you can imagine, there's a lot going off. A lot of people about, you know, in shock, um, they witnessed this incident, they'd seen Michael actually dragged under the vehicle. It's very difficult to get a, a very accurate story quickly as to what's happened. So, like all other major incidents, we treat it with an open mind, start at the beginning, get the basic facts, and as you say, we keep an open mind. Is it somebody that knew Michael? Is this an incident particularly to him? Why he was targeted? Is it an opportunist event by these three lads who saw what was happening and thought, we'll have that van, there may be parcels in it? There's many other scenarios, but those are the initial ones that clearly are considered to move on and start the investigation. So when you first got to the Cunnery, what was your role in the investigation? At that particular time, uh, as I've mentioned, there's confusion. We have to collate how many witnesses had seen it, names and addresses, obtain as much information as possible before people start to disperse. In the background, uh, there's sort of a major incident plan put into operation. More officers are called for, same purpose, collate as much as we can while it's fresh in people's minds bearing in mind people could drive off and leave the area leave the county even so the quicker we obtain the initial information the better this was a murder or a very serious uh, incident anyway which would necessitate a lot of staff in those circumstances an incident room is formed which is like the hub of the inquiry where everything all the information is gathered and filtered into one space at that location, being a rural little village, we used the village hall initially um, for several weeks uh, as a incident room. So we're actually on site, so to speak, to uh, conduct our inquiries. And what was your role as far as the family were concerned? As the inquiry gains pace, the officer in charge who's the senior investigating officer makes decisions as what are priorities the family of the victim are the first priority my understanding was that on the night uh, mr pritchard lived in staffordshire so the staffordshire police visited his home where we understood that his wife hillary was living and they gave the message to hillary what had happened and in fact michael had been killed subsequently a role which is standard in major incidents, is a family liaison officer, which does just that. You liaise with the family. It's a link between the police and the family to keep them updated and give them as much support as we possibly could in the initial stages because Hillary was grief-stricken of what had happened. And I suppose that's the one point of contact so that Hillary hadn't got lots of different police officers going to see her and giving her information your family liaison officer, uh, you, were that one point of contact. That's right. I was assigned the role of the family liaison officer in this case. Clearly anybody in that position that Hillary found herself that day, the least amount of disturbance we can give to the uh, to Hillary on that day and subsequently, the better. Obviously the press were involved, the media, and as a police force there's lots going off and... If she has one person that she can communicate with who hopefully she liked and trusted, it makes it so much easier for the victim and also for the police because there's a lot of interaction between the police and the family. 
as I mentioned, when it's just happened, of course, it, you have an open mind. Why has this happened? Could Hillary help with any information that they were having problems with anybody? Any leads that you can particularly gain from the family at an early stage may help the direction that the inquiry goes. So it's most important that you obtain as much as you can, gain the confidence of the family, the trust, and very often things come from the family that, that do help inquiries. So it's, it's, a, it's a very important role. So during this podcast, what we're going to do is revisit those events of the 12th of November 1997 and also make an appeal to the public. Yes, since I was involved in the uh, the murder inquiry going back to 1997, I think I worked on it for some six months in total. We tried everything we could, all the avenues of inquiry that we possibly could involving the press to try and get as much information from the public and anybody who knew who the offenders were to come forward. All these inquiries at some stage reached the end of what can possibly be done at that time. Even though we've been working for months on this inquiry and quite a lot of police officers and civilian staff, forensic teams, all those sort of people, there is a point where you naturally come to an end. You've either arrested somebody or you haven't and the case is never forgotten, it's always there, but we've got to close it. With the family liaison role, I updated Hillary with what was happening. She actually came and visited the incident room with Jonathan on one occasion. She met the staff so she could see the amount of effort that was going into trying to catch these people. But sadly, at some point, the inquiry has to close. I remained in contact with Hillary periodically, up until the time when I finished and retired in the police. And what we do then is we reintroduce another family liaison officer who will take over my role and, and, and keep in contact. And I'm aware that there's been several uh, reinvestigations or, and re-publicity via the media to try and prompt people into uh, giving information. We thought it was only right that we tried our very best via our podcast to see if we can jog anybody's memory and make them come forward or ask them to come forward to give information and kindly Hillary has agreed to take part in the podcast I started by asking Hillary where did you meet Michael and what were your memories of your time together well Mick and I met when we, we were just 14 we were both still at school and um, we were in a group of three or four other people then but it soon dwindled down to just the two of us. And um, we were really good friends to start with, and then it just blossomed from there. And we married when we were 22. We were both the same age. We were just made for each other, really. We were good friends. We were happy. We were contented. And then when Jonathan came along, um, we were just a happy threesome then. And... Uh, Jonathan and Mick, they were more like, um, instead of father and son, just good friends, you know, because they did everything together. Uh, Mick and I, our hobby was uh, walking and climbing, and we'd had a lot of holidays in the Lake District before Jonathan was born, and we went to Switzerland and Austria and did all the climbs. But when Jonathan was born, it curtailed a lot of the uh, hobbies that we had, and we just concentrated on Jonathan. We 
each respected each other, we each cared for each other and we each loved each other and we didn't do anything that wasn't including all the family. We, uh, we had a good time together and then Jonathan went off to university and it just left Mick and myself and then uh, when Jonathan finished university and got his first job uh, that freed Mick and I up again and we made plans for different holidays that we would like to go on that we hadn't uh, well weren't able to afford whilst Jonathan was at university he always wanted to go to Canada to the Rockies and uh, we were planning on that and that obviously you know had to not didn't happen it's heartbreaking to listen to hillary isn't it yes it is all these years that i've been involved with hillary she's been a very strong person devastated she'd lost her soulmate Michael they had the son Jonathan who they adored and on that particular day when Michael died her life changed forever and sadly it's quite clear that she still hasn't moved on a great deal and is desperate for somebody to be brought to justice so she can put closure to this incident. And when you think about it I mean it is a devastating event to happen the fact that you're at home in the morning, you say goodbye to your husband, he goes off to work, you go off to work, and then when you come home and he doesn't. I mean, on that particular day, she knew that Michael was, was late, later than normal. If that happened to us, you'd think he was stuck in traffic or he was delayed. You would never imagine that within a few hours that two police officers would be at your door telling you that he'd been killed and would never come back. And your life changes forever then? Absolutely. And in Hillary's case, it has. And as I say, she hasn't moved on a great deal. It it's troubles her and, and she thinks about it most days. And all we can hope for is that we can help to bring some closure f- for her. I mean, what must it be like when you get that knock on the door? And you go and there's a uniformed officer there. Your heart must be in your boots. I mean, as we know, we've been and done that, haven't we? Can you remember, we used to call them courtesy messages, uh, going to somebody's house to tell them that, to tell them bad news, uh, in effect, that one of their loved ones um, just wasn't coming home. Sadly, it happens, I wouldn't say regularly, but people die every day in tragic circumstances or from a natural event they have a heart attack or whatever and die somebody has got to relay that message to the relatives invariably it's the police that have that job to do and like I say we've been and done that many times and you know it's an awful thing to go knock on somebody's door to say your husband in this particular case I'm sorry he's been killed and the reaction is normally they're, they're in tears, break down, and quite naturally, grief-stricken. Yeah, I mean, people react in, in different ways, but certainly of all the courtesy messages I delivered, it never got any easier. Oh, no, it's a, it's a, a personal, 
although you're a police officer, it, you have feelings yourself and you know what's going to happen when you knock on that door because they all usually end up the same way, don't they? Yeah, and as a as a police officer, you're not immune to those emotions or feelings of the person that you're delivering that dreadful news to. And in this case, of course, even though I'm retired, I still think of this. Can we help to bring these people to justice and help Hillary? Leading up to this, when it's the actual day that it happened, um, I was in on my own. I was working full time and I usually got home around half past five, six o'clock and Mick usually came in about the same time. But the day he was killed, um, Jonathan happened to ring me. He got a job and it had taken him to Scotland for a couple of days. So he rang me from Scotland to tell me where he was uh, and just said to me, I'll ring you back. Uh, And I believe the accident with Mick happened about half past three in the afternoon. I didn't find out about it until about nine o'clock in the evening. And luckily I didn't have the television on because I understood it was on the Midland Television News. But no names were mentioned or company or anything like that. So I wouldn't have put two and two together. But when Jonathan rang me a bit later, I said, oh, your dad still hasn't come home. And he said, I'll have you rung his company. So I said, yes, I have. And uh, all they can assume is that um, he's stuck in traffic. So neither of us thought anything about it. Then when I got the knock on the door and the police came and told me, I just thought it was a heart attack he'd had until they said, can we go and sit down? And they explained not in a lot of detail because they were waiting for the Derby police to come. Um, it was just the local police that had let me know it. And um, I think I just went, to, went into shock mode. I couldn't take it in, to be quite honest, and I still can't take it in. It's just absolutely devastated my life. My life's never been the same since, and um, we were such a close couple. We did everything together. He um, he was just my soulmate, and every single day is an effort for me. I know it sounds a cliche, but part of me died that day. I'll never be the same again. My life will never be the same. But at the moment, I'm just existing, and I have to try and make my life what it, it needs to be. So Hillary's had the devastating news of the death of her husband and you're already in the incident room that evening. What happened after that first day? How did matters progress? After the first day, which, as I I mentioned, was gathering as much information as we could, how many witnesses, the, the names and addresses, if we couldn't get hold of them immediately, because, as I say, the people do travel long distances. There could be visitors to Derbyshire who were witnesses who could be from anywhere in the country. But if we've got their name and address written down, we can get back in contact. So the first day is is basically securing information 
The scene of the crime would be examined for forensic evidence, photographed, all recorded, so that in future we can go back to it if, if we need to. Clearly we can't keep the road short more than a day to do that sort of inquiry. So after the first day, then more staff are brought in and the incident room is up and running. All the information goes into the incident room, whether it be by phone. The officers who are working on the inquiry meet there and have a debrief or a briefing and update the senior investigating officer with the inquiries they've been set. And each day after that, the same procedure follows. The investigating officers go out, do the inquiries, whatever they've been allocated that day. If it's a case of tracing people, witness statements being taken... All the things that you can think of are allocated to individual officers for them to go and do the inquiry, come back, and very often you have a team briefing where you openly discuss in the room what you found out that day, what can help, what's maybe suspicious, what your thoughts are as to who or where we can go with the inquiry. And we all pool our ideas, and the senior investigating officer makes decisions based on that information. That goes on every day. You work long hours. Initially, you may work seven days a week because any murder inquiry, the quicker you get the facts, the quicker you're on to a lead, the quicker you've got a chance of bringing it to a conclusion. As time goes on, memories are stretched, people move on, they, they remember things, they forget things, and any senior investigating officer will say that in the first few days to a week of any major incident, that is vital time. If you don't get a lead in that time, the job drags on and on and on. And very often, as in this case, sadly, nobody's been caught. But it has been reinvestigated a number of times over the last nearly 23 years, hasn't it? Any case which is closed because you can't go any further is never forgotten. It's always there and periodically it will be reviewed. Several officers will be allocated it to, to read through it, see where we can go with any other inquiries, and breakthroughs particularly in forensic science. At that particular time, DNA was very early on in its uh, use for crime detection. The techniques now have gone on a hundredfold from there, and what couldn't be done in 1997 may be able to be done today. And, and then all in that time between, as advances are made, we have a look, see if we can help. So I'm thinking if we if we did get some information as a result of the appeal that we make to the public, there may be forensic tests that can that can be done even this late in the day. Yes, it's never too late to investigate anything. And if we can, as a result of our podcast bring further information, who knows, in all those years, relationships may have broken down, friendships broken down, people who were aware of information but didn't wish to give it years ago, the circumstances change. And this podcast may just prompt somebody to come forward and we hope it may lead to a successful conclusion. It's sad when you do work on an investigation and you don't come to any kind of conclusion or, or closure because whilst as a police officer we move on to the next inquiry the family are, are left with their with their grief and have to uh, carry on with with their lives yes there comes a point where 
the police and everybody else has tried the best, done everything they possibly can. Nothing else can be done at that time. And as you rightly say, uh, we then get reallocated to other enquiries. Like any police work, every day is different. You don't know what's going to come on the following morning. But you live and breathe for, for weeks and months that murder enquiry, as I did with Michael Pritchard's murder. And at some point, that has to stop. And we do this for a living, although you get involved with the family, you, you get to know them quite well. They become... Uh, I wouldn't say friends is the wrong word, but they become uh, acquaintances that you've that you've trying your best to help. But the point comes where we have to move on to other things, and as you rightly say, we leave them. Unfortunately, we hadn't caught anybody. Unfortunately, we couldn't give closure to Hillary. She lives on every day, grieving for Michael and not being able to give closure and move on, whereas we have. Yes, you're right. There's a point that you reach in an investigation where there's nothing more you can do and you have to move on and you move on to your next investigation. And sadly, that's not something that the family can do. Um, my son Jonathan has since married and I've got two wonderful grandchildren. Jonathan is still very angry and... He doesn't like to talk about his dad and what happened. All he says to me is, we'll talk when they've got someone in prison and we can talk about it then. But I know that he tells his children, my grandchildren, uh, one is 14 and the other nine, and he has got photographs of Michael around the house. So the children do know who he is, which helps me to see the photographs when I go to Jonathan's house. My house has um, got photographs from the day he, he, I first met him, 14. And the police in Derby very kindly gave a photograph to me in, in a frame of the one that went out in the press. And that's a beautiful frame and that's got pride of place in my house. And I do thank the police for that. And uh, occasionally, um, I've got a video of Mick that was a family that we met in Austria took it off us. And that's the only video I've got of Mick because he hated his photograph taken. And he wouldn't, but he, he hadn't got any say in this. It was a video that was taken. So I love to take play this video every now and again. And um, I just have to make the most of what I've got at the moment. Mick's got a tree planted in his name in Kirk Langley at the position where he died. And I go regularly and um, the council have put the tree up and I go and they've left me a little bit of uh, soil around and I put plants in it around the tree. And that gives me a bit of comfort. I don't um, dwell on the fact of the actual accident because I can't cope with that. I just cope with the fact that this is where Mick was and this is where his resting place was and that gives me comfort just to go there and know that I've got the tree 
there and the, and the plants that I can do for him. This is the uh, Cunnery Salary at Kurt Langley where the uh, scene of Michael's murder took place. Have you ever been here? No, no, I've, uh, I can't say I have. It's very quiet, isn't it? There's, there's uh, a little cul-de-sac off the main A52, but uh, in a small village. There's hardly anything uh, about this morning. And there's about, what, 30 or 40 houses, would you say? Yeah, I would I would think so. And the thing that it's that strikes you about the place is how normal it is, and that and that's what people say, don't they? When when something tragic happens, they do say to you, "Fancy that happening here," or things like that don't happen here. Yeah. But the truth of the matter is that things do happen on people's doorstep in what are very normal, average roads. Yes, yes, quite. This is. Uh very secluded. If we have a walk up uh, the road into the cul-de-sac itself at the top, okay. I'll show you where Michael's van was parked and uh, where he was delivering the, the parcels when the incident took place. It's just up uh, up here. As you look into the corner of the cul-de-sac, it was, it was up there as we're approaching it now. Yeah, so this is where his van would have been parked when he was delivering his parcel. And that's when he saw... The young man, or, or he heard the young man get into his car and uh, and try to steal it. That's right. In fact, we're here now. It was parked somewhere where we're stood at the moment and it was delivering to the houses just in front of us. He was there when his attention was uh, focused on his van. He heard it uh, obviously moving. We'll just move out of the way. There's a motorbike coming. <laughs> and um, And... So this is where he was stood when his attention was drawn to his vehicle being manoeuvred and he turned round and ran to it. And it was just here where it reversed back with him banging on the sides of the van, trying to stop it. And as it reversed in this little area here, it drew forward and that's where Michael stood in front of it then with his hands on the front of the vehicle, trying to stop the vehicle. And of course, eventually, as we know, he was run over dragged under the vehicle and sadly carried under the vehicle from what witnesses said 50 yards or thereabouts down down the cul-de-sac and obviously the van then made its escape leaving Michael behind on the road and so so that area there roughly will be where where Michael died and actually that must be Hillary's tree um do you remember when she was talking to us she said that the council had uh, planted a tree for her and she comes here quite regularly and that gives her some comfort I, I can see the the flowers round it and and that's that's quite a nice little spot isn't it it is and that is the area where Michael sort of was left behind in the road as the van made its escape and I've not been back here since 
1997 and then a little bit into 1998 as we uh, conducted the enquiry before it was finished. And it's very, well, to, to how it seems to me, hardly changed at all. The same houses, there's been no additions, and uh, it's almost the same as when, when it took place in 1997. As we're stood here on the cunnery looking down the, the route that the uh, Michael's van took, as you go down the country a short distance it comes to a junction the vehicle turned left and that's where witnesses believe they saw the offender's vehicle accompany Michael's stolen vehicle down turned left and then a short distance later turned right onto the A52 which is the main road between Ashbourne and Derby and um, what was that other vehicle it was believed to be a white uh, Bedford Rascal van. The only part of the number plate that was uh, recognised was the E prefix. The late 90s into the early uh, 2000s, there were quite common vehicles, the little Bedford Rascal vans. They were used by florists, people selling sandwiches or delivering to factories. They were quite a common little vehicle for, for small items being run around. I don't think I can remember the last time I saw one. I can't remember the last time I saw one, but going back to 1997, they were quite prolific, weren't they? Yes, yes, they were fairly common. So, uh, again, it didn't uh, arise or give any um, suspicions as to the vehicle being out of the ordinary. They were, they were quite common in those days. So the driver of Michael's van, what was the description of him? It was a white male, 19 to 20 years, approximately 5 foot 9 inches tall, medium build. He had blonde or fair collar length hair and he was uh, described by witnesses as having a baby face. And I think I'm right in saying that the witnesses from that time also gave a description of the driver of the other van the one that's believed to be the Bedford Rascal. What was his description? The driver of the Rascal van was a white male, again approximately 19 to 20 years, slim build and had ginger, sandy type hair. And the, the distinguishing feature with him is that uh, he had the, a tooth missing at the top left-hand side of his uh, jaw. Witnesses describe seeing that uh, gap in his teeth. That's got to be fairly distinctive then, hasn't it? At that time, yes, it would be. Bearing in mind, we are those are descriptions from 1997. So really, what we're asking people is to put the descriptions of those two males with the description of the van. And now we're nearly 23 years on, so they'll be in their early mid 40s, something like that. Yes, approximately. I mean, the uh, at the time they were approximate aged late teens possibly into the into 20 so another 23 years on it's early 40s i would say so the information that we are giving people is to put all of these aspects together from 1997 come forward nearly 23 years and provide us with information that will then help the police to bring the perpetrators of this tragic crime to justice and then Hillary and her family can get some closure and, and not forget but move on.
For those of us who were around in 1997, we can recall certain milestones in history and put the time of Michael's death into context. 1997 was a time of great change in UK politics as the Conservatives, led by John Major, were defeated in the May election and the leader of the Labour Party, Tony Blair, who had never held a cabinet position, became Prime Minister. Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone was published on the 26th of June, the first of J.K. Rowling's successful series of seven books about the young wizard. At the end of that month, Hong Kong was handed back to China after being leased to the British for 100 years. On the 31st of August, Diana, Princess of Wales, was killed in a car crash in the Pont de l'Alma underpass. Oasis, Elton John, The Spice Girls and Aqua were all in the charts. The Grammy Award for the Record of the Year was won by Eric Clapton's Change the World. And for one family, a change came to their world that still resonates even today. Hilary, we've met now for the first time in I think it's 15 years since I last met yourself to do with your husband's murder. I've been retired from the police 12 years. I still think about you. And if we can help to track down these people who at the time was approximately 20-year-olds, maybe now be in mid-40s, and if we can help to, to catch them, we will do. What's your thoughts on, on what we're doing? I very much appreciate what you are doing now. And it is painful for me, but I realise it's necessary. And with all my heart, I want the right people to be caught and prosecuted. And what you're doing now will bring it to a wider audience. And I very much appreciate it. The more you can do... It'll help me and it'll help the case and my son. Mick was a well-respected driver for the delivery company. I was involved in inquiries at the depot where he worked. He was just an ordinary man mm -hmm. doing his job on that day when it all went wrong. Everybody spoke very well of him. And that's the impression I got. Is that correct? Very, very much. He was very quiet. He thought a lot, but didn't speak unless it was absolutely necessary. And he hated more than anything injustice. If we were out walking and he saw someone that was misbehaving, say, and, and were doing something that shouldn't, he couldn't help but get involved and say you know, this isn't right. So I can fully understand the way he was killed. You know, he wouldn't let them get away with anything, but he gave his life for it. And what for? They came away with nothing because the van had got no parcels in it. It was at the end of his run. They abandoned the van, so they didn't even take the van. So Mick's life was cut out in seconds. Is there anything you'd like to say to anybody who's out there who may have any information that will help? What would you like to say to them? I think about this every day and I know that if it was someone that I knew who'd committed this crime, I'd think long and hard. The person who knows what they did and the people who know must obviously think about their own lives and difference it's going to make to them if they're caught but you're not thinking of 
Michael's family, Jonathan, my son, and me, of not having my soulmate, what do you think that is doing to me and also for Jonathan, my son? He has had to do without his father, his best friend, without the guidance. Think of what that has done. So please, if you have any information, and you, even if it's a smallest and you don't think it's going to mean anything, ring the police or tell someone. Because whatever it is, the forensic side has gone on in leaps and bounds and something may click. So please, please help them. As we've said, John, it's not unusual for people to come forward and give information to the police many years after the event. And that's not just witnesses, is it? That could be the offenders themselves. Over the years, people have come and just knocked on the police station door and given themselves up for various crimes, very serious ones. Their lives have changed. They may have lost a member of their family. It's played on the mind. And of course, equally, psychologically, they must be thinking about this, that we've killed a man. Yeah, I remember just before Christmas, 84, we had a chap go missing from his work. He he left work and never came home. And a couple of days afterwards, two or three days afterwards, a guy walked into the police station and just said, I know you're looking for this chap and uh, I know where he is and he's dead and and he just couldn't live with himself for what he'd done. Exactly these people were young men at the time, late teens early 20s, now 23 years later the middle aged men possibly have children, even grandchildren they've lived through a lot more of the life and they are more experienced in life that who knows, this podcast may prompt them to come forward. They may not be able to live with what they've done. They killed a man when they escaped from the scene on the cunnery. That's been on their mind for 23 years. They may have uh, made friends or enemies that now would wish to come forward when at that time they didn't. The possibilities are endless, aren't they? You'd hope that um, a conscience would come with maturity, wouldn't you? Yes, that, I mean, we've all been young people and, and now obviously we've grown up and we're, we're older people and we learn through life what actually happens. And on that day, it may have been uh, stupidity and hijinks or whatever reasons. They've lived with it day and night for the 23 years since Michael Pritchard died. They knew what they'd done. They were quite aware that this man had gone under the vehicle and been dragged along before they sped off. Even the ones in the rascal van who weren't actually driving Michael's van must have known what's happened by the manner of their escape, the erratic driving as they fled the scene. They dumped his vehicle. It was collected by the two in the rascal van, and they sped off. And they must have spoken amongst themselves, as well as to other people, about what happened on that day. I'm quite sure that when they left the scene and wherever 
they drove off to to escape, the conversation must have been, you know, what had happened. If they didn't realise this uh, man was now dead, he must have been seriously injured and they left him behind. When you think about it, John, though, the offenders could actually be listening to us now, couldn't they? I'm sure that that has been the topic of discussion for many years after the event. They were obviously waiting for the police to knock on the door. They must have been monitoring or looking at the news and they knew that there was a massive police inquiry looking for them. And to this day, of course, nobody has knocked on the door. I think the only piece of national coverage that we got for this matter was a Crime Watch appeal. And there's a link to that on our website. Yes, I mean, all avenues were explored in 1997. And at that time, Crime Watch on the television was a prominent means of an appeal. The video that was made is archived and and still can be viewed. So, yes, you know, podcasting is sort of an updated crime watch, isn't it? But going back to those times, if you weren't watching Crime Watch at that time, you didn't get an opportunity to be able to see it. Whereas with the podcast, you can listen anytime, anyplace, anywhere. Because it is a global medium, then anybody can come forward with information because they can listen to the appeal at any time. And we have known of other cases in other countries where a podcast has flushed out further information. Yes, particularly in America where true crime podcasts are very popular, the police over there have made appeals via podcast that have borne fruit and people have been found who for many, many years... Like this particular case, it was remained undetected. An appeal was made and, of course, people came forward, which resulted in somebody being arrested for a murder. The current officer in overall charge is Detective Chief Inspector Paul Tatlow. When I first spoke to him, my first question was, what is the current status of the inquiry? current state of the investigation is, clearly it's been reinvestigated a few times, but as time goes on, uh, advancements in DNA technology allow us to reinvestigate cases, look at other opportunities to, to recover DNA from, from various places. So that's what we've been doing. We've been re-looking at statements, people that have come into the inquiry at various times across the years, because it's obviously been going on a number of years now, uh, which has thrown up some sort of interesting opportunities for us to, to look at possibilities going forward, really. Would it be right to say that you're hopeful that there will be some progress on the case? Yeah, I mean, you're always hopeful. You never know what's around the corner when it comes to DNA. So, you know, we've made massive advancements from where we were when this when this case happened, which is going to afford us opportunities to look look at perhaps people we've looked at before, but we can look at it in a different way. As well as the technology, at the time of the, the murder of Mr Pritchard, the age, approximate ages, were about 20 years of age. So they'll be mid-40s, the offenders now. What's your view on the fact that there may be some progress with people who were aware and haven't come forward in the past? They may have been friends with the offenders that now would help with the inquiries. Is that somewhere we could look? Yeah, I mean, it's clear from, from the evidence that was gathered at the time that there was more than one person 
present at the Connery when this took place. And I understand, you know, perhaps at the time, loyalties to friends, pressure from friends, uh, fear of individuals uh, might have stopped people coming forward. But as time goes on, you know, you, you like to think that perhaps people's consciences get the better of them. You know, you are talking about people that were involved would be now mid-40s, early 50s potentially. They're going to have families, they're going to have children, you know. How would they feel if this was their wife that had been left behind and their children that had been left behind with no answers? So there's still an opportunity for those people to come forward. Well, we wish you all the luck. And as we've heard from uh, Hilary Pritchard, uh, the effect on herself and the family is quite devastating over 21-plus years. And hopefully we'll get some assistance from the public who will ring him and help yeah, I mean, like I said, you know, there's obviously a lot of information out there. There's a lot of people out there that have got information about this because there are a lot of people that will have been involved uh, and will have come into contact with them over the years. Um, and people sometimes can't avoid speaking about it. So it might seem insignificant to the person that's got that information, but if, if you let us know, it might feed into something else that we can use. If people have information they wish to tell the police, how do they actually contact them? There's a number of ways that you can contact Derbyshire Police. Uh, The first one is they've got a website, derbyshire.police.uk. They've also got a Twitter account, at derpolcontact. And you can also ring 101 to get in touch with the police. In order for the information to get to the inquiry, you would have to quote that this is called Operation Montera and it's an incident number 409 of the 9th of the 11th 17 and that would then give it that unique reference number which allows the information given to go back to the investigation. There's also an organisation called Crime Stoppers and they're nothing to do with the police, they're an, an independent charity and people can contact them and give anonymous information to help the inquiry. Yes, Crime Stoppers was set up many years ago. It was recognised that uh, people with information were sometimes reluctant to contact the police for various reasons. They were nervous, they were concerned about the confidentiality of it, and just generally uncomfortable in, in talking to the police. Crime Stoppers was set up as an independent body that removed contact from the police and when you speak to Crime Stoppers it's in complete confidence and your identity is withheld. That seemed to work and works very well and people have confidence in talking to them. And in this particular case Crime Stoppers have obtained a reward of £10,000 which is payable to anybody who gives information concerning the identities of the offenders, the murder of Michael Pritchard. The reward is made on the arrest and conviction of the offenders and is done through confidential channels. So to get more information about Crime Stoppers, I spoke to Lydia, who explains how they actually work. I am Lydia Patsalides, East Midlands Regional Manager for Crime Stoppers. 
Crime Stoppers is an independent charity. We are the only way in which you can report information on crime 100% anonymously. Should you choose to phone us on 0800 555 your phone number will be scrambled and removed to make sure that we are not able to trace it. Should you choose to contact us online, the IP address is encrypted, so we are not able to trace where that contact has come from. And our call agents are specifically trained to make sure that you do not divulge any personal information, but instead give the details of the crime that you have. Crime Stoppers was established in 1988 on the back of the Broadwater Farm riots. During those riots, PC Keith Blakelock was murdered. And after the riots, in the month following, over 400 people were spoken to in order to try and obtain some sort of information as to who was responsible for this crime. It was established during that time that many people lived in fear of others on the estate and therefore no information came to light and the murderer has not been brought to justice. Crime Stoppers are supporting Derbyshire Police in looking for the murderer of Michael Pritchard who was run over on the 12th of November in 1997 whilst attempting to prevent the theft of his delivery van. Crime Stoppers are offering a reward of up to £10,000 for any information which comes through Crime Stoppers that may lead to the arrest and conviction of the person responsible for this crime. So please do get in touch. Our number is 0800 555 111 or you can contact us online at crimestoppers-uk.org. When you think about it, John, the whole reason that we came to podcasting was this one case because it's the one case that you keep coming back to, isn't it? Yes, since 1997, a great amount of time and effort has been put in by many police officers and is still being put in to try and find the offenders of this murder. As we know, we work on murders and other serious crimes and then when that comes to a conclusion or unfortunately as in this case it has to be stopped because there's nowhere else to go we move on the victims family and in this case Hillary and Jonathan still live that day not knowing what actually happened to Michael and the consequences are that it has an effect on them Jonathan won't speak about it doesn't want to speak to anybody about it and has shut it off. He's waiting for the day when it is detected. And as Hillary has said, it has had a massive effect on their life and is continuing to do so. And people do deal with trauma or tragic events or grief in different ways. And that's that's Jonathan's way of dealing with it. And we've heard Hillary's way of dealing with it. Yes, as you said, part of her died that day. She hasn't found peace, I suppose, and moved on with her life and is hoping that if we can detect the offence, that she will then be able to move forward with Jonathan and live the rest of their lives as best they can. And really, we've seen what other podcasts have achieved in other countries And I really do believe that this is the medium that can be used to help such cases as this. Let's hope so. We are aware that it has worked elsewhere. 
and any publicity that keeps bringing it back into focus and bringing it to the forefront of people's minds, be the witnesses or the offenders who, who may be listening, it's another avenue that we can explore along with all the other issues, forensics and moving on with modern technology. All these things can be used and revisited and let's hope it works on this occasion. Yeah, let's hope our efforts in making this podcast bring the information and the closure that Hillary has sought for all those years. It is nearly 23 years since Michael was deliberately run down, and the subsequent years have done little to ease that loss for his family. There may have been reasons why those who knew about the murder didn't come forward at the time, but situations could be different now and allegiances might have changed. The information someone has could now be the key to help identify the perpetrators. You've heard how this murder happened from the investigators and those charged with the re-investigation. You've also heard the effect that losing Michael in these tragic circumstances has had on his devastated family. Can you help? Do you have information? Put Michael at rest and give Hillary and her family the peace they deserve. Make sure those responsible are brought to justice. If you can help, please contact Crime Stoppers on 0800 555 111 or alternatively Derbyshire Police on 101 quoting Operation Montera, incident number 409, dated 091117. Thank you for taking time to listen to the True Crime Investigators UK podcast. This show was researched, produced and presented by John and Sally. The narrator was Melanie Crawley. It was edited and produced for Cornucopia Radio by Peter Beeston. Also, thanks to the media students of Derby University for helping us record our interviews with Hilary and Paul. You can find out more information and case notes about the Michael Pritchard murder by visiting our website at truecrimeinvestigators.co.uk. On the website, you'll also be able to send us messages, discover subscription links for all podcast platforms, and follow us on our social media accounts. Make sure you're subscribed to this feed so you can automatically get new regular episodes as soon as we release them. And also, if you enjoy this series, we'd really appreciate you leaving a review or star rating in your favourite podcast application. Your support will help us grow and expand our true crime investigations even further. Thank you.